Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class, led by Pastor Jim Adi. We will start a new series in the coming weeks on famous people in the Bible you never heard of. But before we dive into that series, we wanted to dig into our vaults and bring out a previously unreleased episode about being happy and content. Enjoy. to our uh, discussion for today, which asks the question, do you have to have, have to be happy in order to be content? It's just kind of an interesting way of thinking about that. All right. When you were younger, what did you think would make you happy? What did you think you were convinced if you just had this or didn't have this, then you would be a happy person? Christmas presents? Christmas presents? Like in July or something? Yeah. Okay. So when somebody gave you a present, when somebody gave you something, you would be happy. And then when you didn't have presents, you weren't happy? Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, Very good. Yeah, Tom. Yeah. I remember looking through the Sears catalog and just getting my heart set on something in the Sears catalog. The Sears catalog, anybody relate to the Sears catalog? Or the Montgomery Wars, remember that when that would come out, that big old thick thing? You know, what were Montgomery's or Sears catalogs good for after you didn't, what did you use them for? Come on, what'd you do, what'd you do with them? Or people would, they became convenient uh, boosters, seat boosters at our house, right? You'd sit on them and then you could be up at the big people's table. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it might sound funny, but I've always wanted a house that had two bathrooms in it because there were eight of us <laughs> So you thought if you had a, a house with two bathrooms, you would be happy. Boy, that is great. Yeah. So I'm kind of sort of getting the sense that happiness was tied to when you didn't have something and you thought that if you had it, then you would be happy. Right? Okay. Anybody else happy? Happy, happy, ha- oh, yep. I always wanted to be independent. I wanted to make money. I couldn't wait to get out of high school. You couldn't wait to get out of high school, be on your own. Okay. Did it pan out the way you thought it would? Yeah, probably. Probably so. Okay. So that really kind of fit, yeah, paying bills and making money and, yeah, paying taxes and all that independent stuff. Yeah. Awesome. All right. One more. Anybody over here? Happy? Yeah, Tom, happy. When the fish were biting. When the fish were biting. Did you ever go fishing and you didn't want to catch fish? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did that, yeah. Sometimes I didn't want to catch fish because I didn't want to do anything with them. I just wanted to get out in the water and just catch and just fish. And that was the convenient way of saying that I didn't catch fish, okay? Well... <laughs> I didn't really go to catch fish, so that's, uh, yeah. All right, very good. Well, let's take a look at some things here about, uh, about happiness. Social scientists conduct frequent surveys to find out what people think will make them happy versus what actually makes them happy. So the following items were listed as what participants in a certain age group, 35 to 60, that'd be nobody in here, of course, think make them happy, Okay. So one survey revealed that people thought that if they could look, if their appearance could look like some of the models 
male and female models in a magazine that then, oh, if only I could look like that, then, I'd, then I would be happy. Having more free time for leisure. Have you seen this uh, show on, I think it's on HGTV now, called My Lottery Dream Home? Have you seen this? That people that win the lottery or a big chunk of money like that, then they go and they work with this guy that helps them find homes and they go and they're looking at the lottery dream home. So that's on my uh, bucket list to be able to do that. Okay. But having more free time for leisure, that's what, that's what the thought is, is that if I could just uh, have that, then I would be uh, happy being a millionaire. Okay. That's kind of normal for people to feel that way. How about being young again? How many of you would like to be young again? I kind of I don't think so. I'm kind of remembering some of the young stuff, but maybe I feel differently after. When I hit that 35 to 60 age group, then maybe I'll feel differently about that. Okay, the following items in uh, the next part were listed by young people ages 15 to 21. This is, I mean, this shows some depth. I thought, wow, I, I need to know some of those people. Being healthy physically, mentally, and emotionally having good relationships with family and friends, being fulfilled in work life is actually a pretty big anxiety producer for this age group. Can you guess why? Nothing's secure anymore. Yeah. Pardon? Nothing is secure. Nothing's secure anymore. A lot of these kids remember the stories is probably more of their grandparents now than it would be their parents of working for the same company forever. And then after you retire, having that company's pension and medical benefits still being available to you. That's a re that was a reality in the, in the uh, like my father-in-law had that. And that's not the case anymore. You pay for your hospitalization. Yeah, see, all of that was part of the deal. And so a lot of these kids today, they look at that and they say, that would be part of that security thing, part of that sense of fulfillment. I can't tell you how many... Young, young people in that age group, or maybe, and maybe even a little bit older, who are terrified at the prospect of getting a job that they would hate for the rest of their lives. And I'm not sure where that, where that comes from, because it, it kind of goes against the idea that I have the security of the job, but I don't know where they would get the idea that you're going to like it every day. I mean, you know, even if you have a good job, there are times when it's a grind, and that's true in every job except for church work. Let me tell you, <laughs> church work is a happy job every single day, right? Yes. Let's, let's keep reminding ourselves of that one, all right? Having enough money, I mean, that kind of, having enough money, that, that would be kind of normal to think that way. And then being educated, that's still, that's still a high value in, uh, in that particular uh, age group, okay? Then research shows that what actually works to make people happy is number one, accepting yourself for who you are. Now that doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement, but what it means is, is that there's a sense of, of that I feel good about who I am and I know who I am, okay? So that's, that's kind of an important thing to make people happy. Staying busy in meaningful work or volunteerism. That is really big uh, as you get ready to retire or if you are in retirement to still find something that gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in life 
And that, that is the reason why you get up in the morning. There's still something about the importance of that to uh, stay happy. Having close relationships. And then this one, I love this one, being wiser and more experienced in knowing which battles to fight. Isn't that interesting? I think that sometimes we think when we're younger that every battle is the one we need to fight and not just fight, but win at all costs. Oh, being married. You what? <laughs> being married. Yes. You want to say more about that? Why? Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Smarty sitting there. Yeah. You got, well, I guess you know when to be quiet too, don't you? Gee whiz. That's good. No, that's, that's really good. Yeah, I noticed he was a slow learner on that one. Yeah, well, I think, you, I think you have some work yet to do on that one, frankly. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Any, uh, any thoughts on this part here? Does it surprise you that what we think will make us happy and what actually does, that there is a, a little bit of a difference there? Does that surprise you? No, and, and that's just kind of how that is. I think sometimes we go into... Uh, maybe a little bit of idealistic thinking or grandi- uh, grandiosity, and we say, oh, if only, oh, it would be so great. I mean, we saw that in the story this morning, didn't we, with the uh, children of Israel. It's kind of interesting in that story later on, they got tired of the manna. And they said, manna, every day manna, how come we have to eat this manna? So then what did God do? He provided quail. See, God was not indifferent, nor is he indifferent to our taste buds. So that's good to know. Now, eventually God's patience wears out a little bit because there was another part where they're whining and complaining. And then what did, what did God do? He, remember he sent the snakes, memory sent the snakes and they bit people. So there is a limit, right? To, uh, to God's uh, willingness to put up with that sort of thing. Okay. Some definitions here, maybe uh, if we think about the difference between happy and content. And uh, again, this is not the exhaustive word on that, but some things to maybe think about is that happy being happy or happiness is an emotion of positivity. Uh, one's level of happiness is affected by how well your life is going. Okay. I mean, there's, there is a, there's an environmental or atmospheric sort of effect that, that it can have on your uh, outlook, your genetics. Okay. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. Uh, Sometimes when you see in, in the genetics of families where you have maybe the, uh, the presence of acute um, depression or anxiety, that chemistry runs through the generations and that can affect the level of one's happiness. Okay. So it just does. All right. Certainly your outlook on life, the way your brain's wired. We know more about that today because we actually can look at people's brains and see how they're wired. And then whether or not you are a glass is half full or half empty person. If, if the glass is half full, that temp for you, that tends to be the, the filter through which you, you sort of look at things that that's the perspective that you have. It kind of can be positive. Sometimes it's idealistic and unrealistic. And then people that would say, well, the glasses have empty, then those people are tend to be kind of more realists, right? But at times they can come off sounding kind of skeptical and uh, like finding fault of some kind. Happy people are generally optimistic. They see the good in others. They notice what people do well and they have comment about it. That's kind of it's kind of what makes it fun about being around a person who is mostly happy. Content or contentment is different. 
It is a deeper sense of well-being. It's affected by, but it is not conditional on how happy life is. Could you be happy in an unhappy life? It would be hard to be happy in an unhappy life. Could you be, could you be content in an unhappy life? It would be hard, but you actually could do it because that's a, contentment is a deeper soul level deal than just happiness is. Okay? And it is determined by one's inner knowing of your, of your identity. Next page. Of your identity, which is who you are, right? Your belonging, which answers the issue of are you loved? The value you have, which is the assets you bring. The future that you have, where you're going, and your purpose, which is why you exist. And all of that got established and first planted in your heart, life, and soul when you were baptized. That's why I connect baptism to it. And I I just marvel at that so much. I, I know I've told this story that when I was a kid growing up in the Bible Belt, it is not supported that you were baptized as an infant. In the Bible Belt, what's supported, uh, in other words, what's honored by your friends and people around you, is the day you gave your life to Jesus, which for a lot of kids is right around the, you know, 13 or 14 or whenever it was that they went forward at uh, at the Baptist church and got, uh, had the altar call, okay? And that's the way they do it. I mean, I'm not saying anything bad about it. I'm just saying that if you were baptized as an infant, which many of us were, how many of you were baptized as an infant? Okay, so see, we, we sort of relate to that. So when I was a kid growing up, going to Young Life and going to some of the different um, church, parachurch groups that were in high school and different places like that, people would say, well, like, yeah, when did you, when did you come to faith in Jesus? And I said, well, I was there, but I don't really remember when it was because I was a little baby being baptized. And they would look at me like I, that, that didn't really count. And that's what the belief is. It didn't really count. Here's the beauty of being baptized as an infant. When you don't know, you have stuff being planted in your heart, soul, and mind that are there from that point on. And that is a different level of knowing. And that's what I'm trying to get at here. Is Yeah, are our brains fully developed? No, they're not when you're like a little kid. Do you know stuff? No, you don't know it here. But it's known in here. And that's why when we're baptized as infants and then we grow up in the church, meaning grow up in Sunday school, grow up around the word, grow up with parents who or grandparents or, or other people that remember your baptism and they help you do that. See, that's what a sponsor does. And maybe even gives you money on those days, right? Okay. That reinforces all of that that started at your baptism. So don't ever feel bad about it. Don't feel, and I'm not saying you did. I'm just saying if you would ever be tempted to sort of minimize that and say, yeah, it happened to me, but you know, my parents made me do it. That, that was a wonderful gift that they gave you. And oh my heavens, you want, you want to, to, to celebrate that. I, I know I've talked about this. How many of you can get a hold of your baptismal certificate? Have you done that? Oh my gosh, do that and then frame it. Okay, it's, yeah, okay, it's just a piece of paper. But it's not just that. It's a touchstone to the day 
that Jesus said to you, you are my child whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. All these things were affirmed for you on that day. And if you could frame it and then put it someplace where maybe it's the last thing you look out before you go out the door. Because the hardest thing about being in the world today is that the world's messages are totally opposite this. See, your value has nothing to do with who you are in the world's mind. It's what you wear and, you know, how much money you make and all those things. How many likes you get on Facebook, right? Okay, that's, that's how the world measures that stuff. And so we have to have that. We have to have that, uh, the strength of that thing that I take with me, knowing that the messages of the world will assault that. Okay, does that make sense? I know this is a common, I'm, about, I'm uh, on my soapbox today. It must be, in, I must be in preaching mode still. All right. Okay. Okay. So the scriptures now, con- uh, so we're talking about contentment. So the scriptures connect contentment to your faith life. So in other words, having a faith life is part of the feeding tube or whatever you want to call it, the, the thing that, that creates and then sustains this idea of, of contentment in life. So here's some ways that we can think about that. In 1 Timothy 6, 2 to 10, would somebody read that, please? These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Okay, thank you. Up to that point. So that's kind of a... That's kind of a bummer look, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of like, oh boy. But let's, let's pull that apart a little bit. All right, so, so what, what he says is if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of who? Of Jesus. All right, so here what Paul is talking about in, 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 in these words is he's saying that we have the teaching, we have the word, if you will, of God that has been given to us up to this point, and that these are the things that are to be taught and learned. There were in his day people that were teaching things contrary to that. Thank goodness we're past that. We don't have that today, right? (laughs) No. In fact, in many ways, it's even harder today because the sophistication of, and we've talked about this a little bit, the false prophet sort of idea, the sophistication of it and, and to some degree, the uh, panoramicness of it in the sense of, you know, the special effects that you can have and, and the way that uh, you can do, do things with technology make it easy to believe that which we should not believe. And so the idea of being discerning to some degree about what is it that's being taught, what is it that's being said, and how does it match up to what we know from the scriptures, all right? And so what he says is, if anybody teaches otherwise and doesn't agree to that, all right? So the point with with respect to contentment is that the source of contentment and that which feeds contentment in life is the word. So what happens if I take the word out of my life? Or if I say, well, the word's not that important because you know what, there are other words in the, in the world too. And now the, 
the word of God is sort of seen on the same plane as other wise writings of other philosophers in our world. What happens? The feeding and the security that comes from, uh, from knowing God is e- begins to become eroded. So then what he says is if they don't, if there's not that agreement and there's this teaching uh, things otherwise, then what does he say about them? He says they are conceited. When somebody is conceited, basically what's happening is the ego takes over and then there is a kind of self-centeredness in terms of what they think and what they say and how they look at things in life. So what the word does is the word keeps our, self con- our self-interest or our sense of being conceited. It keeps that in check. Now, what part of the word would do that? Yes, the law. Now, say more about that. Can you say more about that? How does the law keep my ego in check? In what way does the law do that? Reminds us of our sins, our failures, the things where we fall short. That's right. Why do we need to be reminded of that? I mean, isn't that just being Debbie Downer? Why Why do we need to be reminded that we're not perfect? Why do we need to be reminded of that? Well, because we're not, of course. Yes, that's why. But what else? We need Jesus in our life. We need word in our life. So we need Jesus in our life. We do. But why do I need? What is the relationship of the law, the commandments, right? And the, what God says we should be doing. How does that help me have Jesus in my life? You ever thought about that? It chops down our pride. It does do that. We hope. Yeah. I mean, I, sometimes we say, well, thank goodness he's not talking about me. He's sure talking about you. Okay. Right. Right. But see, the purpose of the law is to remind us of the need we have for a savior. If I'm convinced that I'm not a sinner, if I'm convinced that everybody else is worse than me, then why do I need a savior? I don't need a savior. You need a savior, but I don't need a savior. I'm not pointing directly to you right now. I'm, I'm you get what I'm saying is that, that we, isn't that what we do? We, we find other people that need it more than us. And then when we say that we're saying about ourselves that we don't need that. We all need a savior. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, I would get rid of your ego. I think it would be helpful if you would realize who God really is. Say more. And his magnificence. And he fills the whole universe and we're, like I said, that little speck on that third ball of mud out from a second-rate star. And Gee, I feel better. Thank you for, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we are. Yeah. You realize his attributes of perfection. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to go very far to figure out you're a sinner. Yeah, I know. But I need to be constantly reminded of that. All right. But again, it's not then to say, oh, what a terrible person you are. And then there's no good news. The reason why I need to hear the bad news is, is so that I'm receptive to the good news. Because if I don't think that I need the bad news and am I resistant to that, then, then I have no use for the good news. Like I said, that good news is for everybody else. The ones that really need it, right? Instead of me. Yeah. I, I think it also encourages humility. And I'm remembering the definition you gave us several months ago about humility is being able to learn. Yeah. Since we're not perfect, 
Right. We still have stuff to learn. Yeah. It's being, uh, the, uh, the idea of being teachable or being coachable is, is kind of the way that's used in a practical way of being humble. And so if you, if you think you know it all and you act that way, well, then you're not coachable. You're not teachable. And what, what we hope then is that another, another attitude adjustment will occur in your life that will help you come to, that, uh, come to that realization. And you never quite know who's going to be the one that would do that for you, right? So there you go. All right. So he says about people then that have this self-centered sort of ego kind of thing. What does it say? He, at least in his experience, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's always this way, but he says in his experience, what is it? They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels that result in all these like lousy relationship things. And then there's constant friction with people uh, of a corrupt mind. So it's, it's sort of like um, that it would be somebody maybe who's constantly argumentative. And you can't tell that person anything because they're always right. Hey, does anybody know somebody else like that? I'm not going to ask you if, to confess it in yourself, of course. I've learned that. I don't ask you about yourself anymore because nobody raises their hand. But, <laughs> but if I ask you if you know somebody like that, then usually people that are sitting next to somebody else will raise their hand. So it's just like the perfect thing. Okay, well, let's go in then, next part then, verses uh, 6 to 10. Would somebody read that, please, out loud? But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Thank you. So godliness with contentment. So what would contentment bring to godliness? You ever thought about that? So it's kind of it's interesting the way that he he articulates that that it's it's godliness with contentment. I suppose that you could have godliness without contentment. Okay, I guess you could. All right. But here he's talking about the idea of both of them together. So if you were a content person, which I'm assuming all of you are, okay? All right. How does that contentment affect your day-to-day walk with Jesus? In the normal life that we have, it living in a, you know, kind of self-serving world that we live in. Yeah. Well, I would think if you're, you're, you're content with what you've got, then your, your mind is not worried about where to get whatever you're looking for. Okay. I think you can, that inner peace and stuff allows you to let, let God shine through you to be able to express God more more easily than, than, okay, where am I going to pay, how am I going to pay the next bill, or, okay. or you know, if you're worried more about things to affect you, if you're content inside, then you can worry about helping others and, and, and spreading them. So, uh, I, okay, so sort of restate what you said, um, it, you have to tell me if I goofed it up, is, um, it sounds like you're saying that 
that when contentment is present, you, you're not obsessing about what's the next thing. And that frees you up to be able to live your life in such a way that, that the peace of Jesus and the joy of Jesus sort of is with you. Is, am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mary Jo. I think, I think of contentment as placing yourself in Jesus' hands and really with the knowledge of his love, yeah. his love for you, yeah. that you know that whatever happens, mm-hmm. you're going to make it okay. If it's bad or good, he's there for you and you can feel his arms around you. I think that's contentment. Yeah, that I kind of resonate with that too as well. That sort of sense of no matter what, I'm still loved. And I, I would have to say that in my adult life, that's a more prominent thing than it used to be in my kid life. You know, and I don't know if that's true for everybody, but I I think that's been true for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Richard. Uh, you know, I guess I'm kind of talk about it from the reverse is that. I really believe that if we are constantly complaining about whatever our situation constantly is, complaining yeah we, we we it's like smear graffiti on our faith okay um, there was a radio station here in town that that I used to listen to a Christian radio station but every morning when I was driving to work they were complaining about the weather complaining about the weather so yeah. Oh, you stop listening. Okay. Because it's like, no, God gave us a hot day and God gave us a rainy day. And you know what? I'm not smart enough to know why. Wow. You're way more spiritual than I am still. <laughs> I, uh, I have some work yet to do on that one. Yeah. Especially not so much in the summer because I really like summer. But when it gets like really cold, I just can't get warm. So, uh Maybe you can uh, help me with uh, that in my spiritual walk. But I get what you're saying. You know, uh, there's always going to be something to whine about. Have you noticed that? There's always something to complain about, right? And so the reality is, is that if I devote myself to that, after a while, that's the only thing I'm ever going to see. Because we kind of become what we practice, And if I get really good at noticing only the crummy things in life, and then I reinforce it by telling you about it, then after a while, I'm not going to be able to see any good thing. Because even somebody will come along and say, oh, yeah, but you know, it's not that bad. Look at this good thing. And then I'm going to dispute that. And then I'm going to say, oh, no, yeah, but it could be better. (laughs) Right? I mean, there's just always a way. There's always... There's always something that you can do that with. And so it, uh, to some degree, it's a practice thing, right? In terms of practicing contentment with your godliness. Godliness is still a great thing. Godliness has to do with your Christian walk, okay? Practicing the good habits of your faith and that sort of thing. But, but what a joy it is to be around somebody who's doing the godliness stuff and is content. Holy cow, I can't get enough of that person, right? Yeah, Tom. Well, like you said, there's always something you can complain about. And it is the same as your muscle memory at the stop sign. There's always something to be grateful about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you develop those muscles instead. That's right. That impacts your, yeah. your uh, contentment. Yeah, your gratitude muscles are there too, right? And, and it's not just that you would 
establish a pattern in your mind of finding what's wrong with something, but you actually can do that with finding what's good about something or what's right about something. Okay. So a couple of things, uh, some other notes there. He, he points out that uh, those who want to get rich can more easily fall into a temptation and a trap. So uh, I think we talked about this when we were talking about the Lord's Prayer, the use of the word temptation and, and the word trap, okay? So the word temptation is the same word as the snare rod upon which bait is set. So if you've ever set a trap before, like you wanted to catch an animal or like, eat a raccoon or something. I mean, whatever you want to do, right? <laughs> if you're ever in Alaska, right, then, then you have to have some bait that's, that's on, the tra- on the trap spring thing, you know, that plate that, that once they get uh, apply pressure to that, then the trap snaps shut. Okay, that's what he's talking about. And so the trap is often not seen because our eyes are on what? The bait. And once that trap is set or once that's sprung, it's a little bit too late to go, oh, gee, I shouldn't have gone after that one, right? Okay, so that's what he's saying. So then he goes into this, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So just thinking kind of in a general way, what are some examples of the ruin that can be caused by the love of money? And it doesn't always, but in what way could it be? Could be. That would be the ruin. But how would that be related to the love of money? Because you want to make a good investment so that you can have money a lot. Oh, okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So then you invest and it doesn't turn out that way. Yeah. Okay. And you're ruined. I see. So maybe it's that you you had these wild dreams of... Yeah, hitting the big time, hitting the jackpot. Okay, that, yeah. Okay, so remember what we're doing is we're connecting the love of money, which is different from the stewardship of money, of which investing might be a part of that. Investing is a good thing. It's also risky, so you have to be smart about how you do it and all those kinds of things, right? But we're talking about the love of money. In what way could the love of money do that to you? Yeah. Marty. Well, love of money in the sense that sometimes possibly a spouse works long hours and, as the, and neglects family, and as a consequence, the family is lost. And you could. Yeah, you could. You could, like, put in 80-hour weeks and stuff like that, which then you're saying yes to that, meaning that uh, some other things are said no to. I mean, I don't know. In some work settings, that's almost the expected norm. And, and I don't always know what to do with that because I know that sometimes when uh, uh, someone devotes themselves to their work and they're sort of forced to do that because if you want to have a job, this is what you have to do, right? You're doing it for your family. So there's a little bit of a, that's a little bit, maybe a little bit different sometimes, sometimes. Do you have some thoughts about that? No, if it won't become your God. If it doesn't become your God. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, and so then, in what ways do you per, do you personally keep them keep money in its proper perspective? We know we shouldn't love it, but that doesn't mean that we should like say, "Oh, I don't have any need for money in my life." You know. So, how do you keep that in perspective? Practicing good stewardship is a way to do that. Okay, we talk a lot about that in our church here, and and, and for good reason. 
Because if we think in terms of stewardship, what we're really thinking about then is the idea that we don't own it. We don't own the money. We don't own the possessions. We don't even own our life. We got it, God's the one who's the owner. I'm the steward of it, meaning that it's my job to manage it. And management certainly would include my giving, my uh, some sense charitable giving, but also giving to the church's ministries and, and to God. And then also, you know, caring for your family and paying the bills and being a responsible citizen. Yeah, Jane. Pastor, another one on the room. Um, yes. People that take their paychecks and go to casinos mm-hmm. and try to make money. Sure. Versus putting- That's the lure, isn't it? The lure of gambling, which you talk about muscle memory, that can become an addiction for and is for a lot of people. Yeah. So you're taking your hard-earned money and then you're basically giving it away in the hopes that you will win the big one. Okay. Now, is there anything wrong with a Christian going to uh, Winstar Casino? Or whatever would be your favorite one. No, heck no. It's kind of fun to do that. Someday I'll tell you the story. But not today. All right. Yeah. No, I had a partner in that. It wasn't just me by myself. I, uh, it's no fun to sin alone. Okay. Let's face that. And so, yeah. So uh, anyway, you'll have, you could, ask, why don't you ask Pastor Coleman about that? Okay. Just ask him and see what he says. And then come to me and I'll tell you the truth of what really happened, okay? Okay, we'll just, we'll just leave it at that, okay? This was in our younger years before we were wise, and, but it was pretty much fun anyway. Okay, so, so yeah, is there anything wrong with it? No. Is there anything wrong with playing a lottery? No. Is there anything wrong with going and to the 7-Eleven and getting scratch-off tickets? No. Nothing wrong with that. But what's the caution? You better know yourself. You better know yourself. Because if you go in and maybe you have just a tiny little teeny bit of addictive personality, right? Maybe it could get out of hand. Okay. So kind of my rule of thumb is I got 20 bucks of cash. I got 20 bucks of cash. And, and then that's the limit. But man, it's pretty... What, 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 what? No, no. Now, if you're going to say something, you have to say it so I can hear it. What? I said, but you could have given that 20 bucks to Messiah and been a good steward. I don't know what to say about that stuff. But if I win the big one, I can really tie that down. How about that? Man, yeah. Well, and so then it's a, it's a choice, isn't it? As a steward, it's a choice. And so that's where you just, what you want to do is be mindful of where you got it from, whose it really is, and then what you want to do with it. Okay? That's what you want to do. Yeah. March. My mother never gambled, but she bought a lottery ticket one day, and she just prayed that she wouldn't win. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear what she said? Her mom didn't gamble, but she bought a lottery ticket one time and then said a prayer, please don't let me win. <laughs> and so then what happened? God answered the prayer. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So how did you know about that? How did you, were you there? 
Oh, it's a, I bet it is hilarious in the family. Yeah, that is very funny. That is, well, that would be a good way to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and then I don't know, but what would happen if you won? How would you feel about God answering prayer? I don't know what you would, you probably, yeah. Oh, it's poison. I don't, I don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. You were told in catechism that gambling, any kind of gambling was wrong. Yeah, so that would be that. It is a little bit of a, uh, I guess, a philosophical or moral dilemma. Is like, what if somebody like hit the big jackpot on the lottery and then wanted to tithe that to the church? That would be very interesting because it's like, well, on the one hand, you know, it's like, <laughs> on the one hand, it is like a, a resource that can be used for good. I mean, that's kind of one way to justify it. But the other side of the story is, yeah, but where did you get it from? And on whose back did you, did you get it? You didn't work for it. So that would be a very interesting dilemma. Maybe God will protect us from ever having to make that decision. So if you win the lottery, okay, you can let me know. Okay, and I will help you spiritually deal with the issue of what to do with what to do with that. Okay, all right. Well, let's go to the top of page three here. So, some other verses that we can have a little uh, fun with. In Job, it says, "If they obey and serve him," Job thirty-six. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Right. Prosperity doesn't always bring contentment, right? Because sometimes you can be prosperous and, and you spend all your time worrying about hanging on to it and the fear of losing it. Many, many times there are, okay? So contentment is still kind of that, some, and it's connected to obeying the word and serving Jesus. That's, what, that's how he connects it, okay? Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life then one rests content, untouched by trouble. That, boy, that's kind of an attractive thing, isn't it? Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So there the, the, uh, the, the connection there, the linkage is between the idea of being secure in knowing you're loved and God is in your life no matter what. And that contentment is tied to that. But the caution there is also keep money in, uh, in, in perspective. And then the Philippians 4 one is one that we uh, are familiar with. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Is there some sense of learning it? Yes, I think there is. I think one of the advantages of having a number of years now in my life is that I can look back and say, I didn't die. But in the moment, I thought I would. Oh, I'd just die if this happened. Oh, terrible. And then it didn't happen. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, oh, I guess I didn't. So there's some sense of, of learning from experience, is there not, that God, in fact, is with us that he is walking with us and that, yes, it might've been a difficult lesson to learn. And I still have the arrows to prove it in my backside. Right. But, but what I've gained from it is, a, is a greater thing. He says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. 
I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in what? Okay, we all go, oh, what's the secret? Here's the secret. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's the secret. See, it's not, it's our ability to handle those things is like mm, that much for about that long. There has to be a greater depth. There has to be a greater source that is um, unexhaustible even when your own resources have been exhausted. And that then, now we're talking about the depth of your spiritual life. Okay? So, some thoughts here about how to grow in your contentment and perhaps even happiness with others. A few things here. Uh, Paul in Philippians says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, do what? Think about these things. Now, that word think is not a one-shot moment. Okay, I thought about it. It's continual action, continual action, okay? So what does that have to say about your outlook on life, in your faith walk, in the world that's as goofy as, as it is today, and uncertain in many ways, what does that say about the importance of what you fill your mind with? Pretty important, isn't it? Yeah. Think about those things, okay? And then he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, do what? Put into practice. So, see, it's not just simply the idea that, oh, I'm thinking, 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 thinking. That's a good thing to be thinking. But there are many people who spend all their energy thinking and then they don't have anything left for doing. And he's connecting the two things. He's saying that, yeah, what you fill your mind with is significant and important. But then the way that you reinforce it is that you put it to work. And then when you put it to work and sometimes it works out and sometimes it blows up in your face, then you go back and rethink it again. Okay, it's kind of what you do. And then he says the God of peace will be with you. So here's a few little steps that I kind of came up with. These are kind of fun things. So the first thing is increase the, the frequency of your Nash habit. How are you doing on your Nash habits? Apparently you're not familiar with this life, <laughs> this life-changing, brilliant, and originated by me, of course, all right? to, to uh, practice in your life, all right? So NASH stands for what? N stands for notice somebody's works or accomplishments. How many of you do that quite easily and very well? You notice what other people do. You do. And sometimes the results aren't there, but the effort was still there, and you notice it, okay? If you notice it, then your N is very good because some people don't notice it. Some people are like goes right past them. So this suggests the idea that you work at noticing. Then A stands for internally appreciate the effort or the result that that person was able to do. Internally appreciate. In other words, what that means is, is that when you notice it, you tell yourself, oh, that was a good thing. Oh, that person worked hard. Oh, that person put a lot of effort into that. 
In other words, you're intentionally finding something positive as opposed to intentionally finding or naturally finding something negative. Okay? The third thing is S stands for say something appreciative or positive. So now you're moving from noticing it and thinking it to words come out. And they are words that would say something in a positive way. And then H stands for hug or show tangible and appropriate appreciation. I'm a hugger, so that's probably what I'm going to do. But if you put the red light up, I will not hug you, okay? So sometimes I don't know. I have to get, you know, signals there, all right? But that's what that would be, all right? And the more you do that, the more you're going to find you're able to do it. The less you do it, the less you're going to find you're able to do it. So let's do the math. Okay, what does that mean? Do more of it. And you're going to find that your outlook shifts. It will shift, right? Because you're moving from a a negative perspective of people and things and effort and results into more of a positive perspective. Okay? All right? Let's keep going. Oh, yep, Sharon. So Thursday... Thursday? This past Thursday. Past Thursday, okay. For some reason, and I'm a real positive person. Yeah. Very optimistic. Yes. What I did was, you know, I moved like two years ago from Iowa down here. Okay. And I think I felt healthy. Healthy? And so what I did was I went back to my clinic and and uh, sent an email mm-hmm. to my primary care doctor and my cardiologist. Yeah. And I sent them a message telling them how much I really appreciated that for the 20, 30 years that I was there, yeah. and they were taking care of me, mm-hmm. and let them know that because of that, how my body has, has oh, continued yeah. on. Yeah. I haven't heard anything. Right. I'm hoping. Yeah. It made me feel really good. It's like... This is what I needed to do. Yeah, it was almost like the gift you gave to them became a gift you gave to yourself, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's a way to think about it that way? Yeah, I love that. Okay. Let's keep going. Uh, second thing, the more you repeatedly think about positive and appreciative aspects of other people, the more practiced your brain gets at becoming content and expressing happiness. Again, it's kind of that idea that you, be, you become what you practice. It's that idea, right? And you cultivate an environment that brings out the best in people. See, if, if I'm always negative and if I'm always, you know, kind of being critical, I also am cultivating an atmosphere. I'm cultivating an environment in which people are nervous to be around me because they become super conscientious of whatever mistake they might make. That's what happens. So I can counter that by going maybe just a little bit the other direction, okay? Uh, another one is do a word study of the word grace and note the number of times that God in his word speaks of that love he has for you. Sometimes it's just filling our minds with the good news of how God, what God really thinks of us, right? And maybe committing that to memory. Regularly forgive and ask for forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness is a great antidote for conceit. Right? It kind of goes down the humble route when you ask for forgiveness. And, of course, give it too. And then regularly say, pray a soul prayer. I've been practicing this now for, because I just read it the other day. So I've been practicing this on a kind of regular basis. Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
That's a deeper prayer to go to, prayer of humility. It's also a prayer of, of gratitude for what God does for you, okay? Now, there's going to be a temptation when you pray this. And the temptation will be to take the word me out and put somebody else's name in there. <laughs> All right? And if you're a good Lutheran, it's going to be a poor, miserable sinner. It's not even going to be a sinner. <laughs> okay, so resist the temptation. Say no to Satan, right? Okay, get thee behind me. Because that's what it's going to, that will be the temptation, all right? So always remember that, you know, you're, you're, ta- you're praying about yourself, and that's, uh, that's a good thing. Okay, good stuff today. We kind of had fun with it, kind of a little lightweight deal, and that was really great. I enjoyed it too. So let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that your word speaks to us in such practical ways. We thank you for the reminder that you've given us today in your word that true contentment is a gift from you. And, yeah, we can do all these things that sort of help us to look at things in a positive way and be appreciative and all those things, which are things we should do. But at the same time, what fuels that is the fact that it starts with you, that you look at us and you say, you are my child whom I love with you. I am well pleased. That becomes the thing that gives us all the meaning that, uh, that we need in life. So, Lord, help us to be appreciative of that. Help us to, to remind ourselves and each other of that uh, every day. And then as we live it, uh, help, help us uh, maybe have a shift in our thinking and a shift in our attitude as we really live uh, uh, surrounded by the gift of love you give us and the way that we can show contentment. Uh, Lord, this coming week, we don't know what's going to come of it. We know some of us are heading off to Chicago for the uh, comfort dog uh, deal up there. So pray that you bless us in our uh, journey and uh, in the training we receive. And at the same time, bless and keep everyone here close to you. And so we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.